If you're like me and enjoy stories from the dark side of history, then get yourself on a Forbidden Vancouver walking tour. Your guide will tell you stories of bootlegging, mobsters, riots, secret cemeteries and unsolved murders as they take you to Vancouver's most interesting nooks, from the back streets and alleyways of Victorian Gastown to the forested trails of Stanley Park. Forbidden Vancouver's had over a thousand five-star reviews on TripAdvisor and are winners of the prestigious City of Vancouver Heritage Medal of Honour. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% when you use the code COLDCASE. You're listening to Cold Case Canada, the 1971 murder of Teresa Louise Wise. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. Teresa Louise Wise, known as Louise to her friends, turned 17 the week before she was murdered. A grade 11 student at Windermere Secondary, Louise was the oldest of four children and lived in a working-class area of East Vancouver on Lillooet Street near 16th Avenue. Her father, Jack Wise, was a constable with the Vancouver Police Department. A photo that ran in the newspapers showed a serious-looking girl with brown hair pulled back off her face, hidden behind large, round, dark-framed glasses. Louise's friends knew her as a friendly, hard-working and deeply religious girl who was a member of the Future Nurses Club, participated in Bible study class and volunteered at the hospital. Unlike most teenage girls, Louise never wore makeup. She dressed quite plainly and, to anyone's knowledge, she never had a boyfriend. In the summer of 1971, Louise was hired as a flower girl for H&T florists and became one of the ubiquitous teens who were stationed with flower carts outside liquor stores and hospitals. Louise had convinced her parents to let her stay at home by herself while they took the younger children on a family vacation to Birch Bay, just south of White Rock, in Washington State. The Wises left for their holiday on Saturday, July 7th, and Louise worked a 1pm to 8pm shift outside the liquor store at Broadway in Maine. The following day, Sunday, Louise became one of the 337 unsolved murders that the Vancouver Police Department had on its books, dating between 1970 and 2015. Except for the people Louise saw at a church service near her home on that Sunday night, the last person to see her alive was her friend Gail. Gail lived a few doors down from Louise and had known her for most of her life. Even though they went to different elementary schools, Louise attended St Jude's, the Catholic school. They were always in and out of each other's houses, playing ping-pong in the Wise's rec room or playing with Barbies at Gail's. Except for a smattering of houses, East 16th Avenue from Louise's house on Lillooet to Grandview Highway was all fields and bushes. In summer there was always something to do at Renfrew Park. There was a playground, a small outdoor swimming pool and activities that ranged from decorating bikes to painting. Gail sent me several photos of her and Louise as small children. Some people even left the doors unlocked, believe it or not. It wasn't like it is today. We never had parents driving us to school. I walked. They just play in the bushes. The boys had baseball games were popular then. Stamp collecting was huge. He would go back to my house. We had a picnic table. I got pictures of us. We would sit there. Mum would have lemonade. 
give to us. We'd have our stamp books out and, you know, just things like that kids do. We roller skated, hopscotch, just did the typical kids things. Both girls went to Windermere for high school. They ran track together occasionally, but because Gail was a year older, they drifted apart. That's why it was kind of weird when she phoned me that day to come over, because I thought, God, it was almost like a flash from the past. Because with dating and working, well, you know, it's like when you're a teenager, yeah, you don't see each other as much. Louise phoned Gail on the day that she died. She told Gail that her family was away on holidays and asked if she'd come over and visit and maybe spend the night. She'd fought with her mother, Louise told Gail, because her mother didn't want her working as a flower seller and she wanted her to come away on holiday with the family. When Gail got there, Louise gave her friend a piece of birthday cake and showed her the new navy pants suit that her mother had made for her 17th birthday. Louise planned to wear it to church that night. Gail was surprised when Louise asked about her boyfriend Al and confided in Gail that there was a man who was quite aggressive and had been bothering her at her flower-selling job. Louise gave Gail the impression that the man was in his mid-twenties. Gail wrote down 23 in the notes that she later kept for the police. Louise asked her friend to come back and spend the night, but Gail had a date and said that she couldn't. The girls left together, Gail to her house, Louise to a church service. No one saw a man around Louise's house that night. Because there was no forced entry, police believe he'd either followed her home from church or was already waiting for her at the house when she got back. Likely not knowing what to do, the young girl just let him in. She didn't want this guy probably to walk her home, but didn't know what to do, and he was pushy. He even told me he was pushy. He was very forceful. She didn't like, he was very aggressive, and that scared her. But I never actually, I guess, imagined he would come over, but he had to have come over at night because nobody saw him come. And and she, it wasn't a forced entry, so she had to have let him in. According to a newspaper story, Donald Menzies, an accountant for the florist company where Louise worked, said that she'd taken the Sunday shift off, but that she was scheduled to work on Monday. When she didn't turn up for her shift, Menzies said he didn't try to contact her because it was quite common for flower girls to quit work without notice. He told a reporter that while Louise was a very steady, nice girl, the turnover was extremely high among the flower sellers. If they didn't turn up for a shift, they just assumed that they didn't want the job anymore. Menzies told the reporter that he didn't know of any cases where girls were attacked while at work. He said that the odd idiot tried to make up to them while they were on the job, but he'd never heard of any of the girls being sexually molested. A neighbour of the Wises, who'd been holidaying at Birch Bay with Louise's family, returned to Vancouver early and promised that he'd check in on Louise. When he couldn't reach her by phone, he went to the house on the Thursday around 11am. He found Louise in the living room. There were no signs of a struggle, but both the phones in the house had been ripped out of the wall. Police believe that Louise was raped at knife point, and when that went wrong, choked unconscious and then stabbed four times in the left chest with a knife, possibly one of a set that hung in the kitchen and that she'd used to cut her birthday cake. The knife was still in her chest when she was found. The record player was still going when police found her body days later. Gail was still in shock when police interviewed her. 
They told her that a suspect had bit Louise and had a distinctive overbite and buck teeth. The detective told her to write down everything that she remembered about seeing Louise the night of her murder. Gail wrote down what she remembered over the next few days, and new details popped into her head. She thought back to a conversation that she'd had with Louise, that this man had small hands, smaller than Louise's hands, and was likely small-boned. Louise told Gail that the man came from back east. Gail wrote down Hamilton in her notes. He told Louise that he didn't know anyone in Vancouver. Louise was a, such a sweet person and innocent, very naive as a teenager. Yeah. She wouldn't have known how to tell the guy to get lost. She would have felt intimidated by him for sure. I've known her most of my life. Yeah. That's why she phoned me, and I, and I think she didn't know how to tell him to take a hike, you know, like get lost, I don't want you walking me home sort of thing. Right. I think he forced his way to walking her home. I get right. the feeling she didn't want him to. Because she was nervous about him phoning. She definitely didn't want... And that's when I said, just don't answer the phone. Because I never thought well, he'd come over. Gail remembered that Louise told her the man she never did get his name. Walked Louise home after her shift selling flowers outside the Broadway liquor store at the Kingsgate Mall the Friday before her murder. She didn't let him in, and that was likely because her parents hadn't left on holidays. But that meant that he knew where she lived and she'd told him that her parents were going to be away. Investigators took Gail's fingerprints so they could eliminate them from the ones in Louise's house. Police wanted to know if Louise had been entertaining the young man and asked Gail about the birthday cake, how many pieces she'd had, and how many were missing. And they asked her if there were records in the living room, likely trying to do a timeline and figure out how long he was in the house with her. As Gail began to remember more of a conversation with Louise on the night of the murder and expanded on her notes, she called the detective with her new information. And he said, make a note of anything that comes to mind after I'd spoken to him. But things started coming back as the time went on. And Mum would say, oh, did you tell the police that? And I'd say, well, no, I didn't tell them every, you know, everything because mm. things start coming little bits and pieces, right? And you were never interviewed again? No. That's why I thought, and I know this sounds stupid, but somehow I sort of thought they kind of weren't that interested in what I had to say. Gail's mother told her much later that police had followed her that summer from her home to a job at Woodward's because they were concerned that Louise might have identified her killer to Gail and that she might be in danger. I spoke with Diane, another friend of Louise's, from her grade 11 class at Windermere Secondary School. Diane and Louise belonged to the same Bible group and ate lunch together most days. Our last day of school, we were having lunch. We're like, oh, graduation in September, can't wait. We walked out of lunch and we were so excited about grad. And I just said, see you next summer. I asked Diane to tell me what she remembered the most about Louise. She was really sweet. She was really just nice. She was kind. She was a kind person. She never had anything bad to say about anybody. Diane says that summer of her friend's murder was the first time she ever experienced true fear. That's when I first experienced real, real fear, like that kind of fear. You know, it, it makes you grow up, right? Mm. Um, you know, you're 17 years old and this happens to your friend and, and everybody's talking about how it happened and that was, I was afraid. I was afraid. I recently interviewed Louise's closest friend the year before she died. She didn't want to come on the podcast or for me to name her. So I'm just going to call her Lee. 
where Gail had described a girl who had a strict Catholic upbringing, who'd been a vivacious youngster, who loved life. High school had challenges for Louise. While she excelled at academics, she wore braces, big round glasses, and had no interest in fashion. Lee says she lacked confidence and she was bullied. Lee was the second last friend of Louise's to see her alive on the day that she was murdered. Lee dropped around earlier and Louise had asked if she'd stay the night. But Lee told her she had other plans. From a conversation with Louise that day, Lee believes that she'd met the man outside the liquor store where she was selling flowers. Louise told her that he took her for coffee somewhere between the store at Broadway and Main and her home on Lillooet and 16th, about a five-kilometre walk. He told her he was going to Vancouver Island for the weekend and would phone her on the Sunday night to try and get together. Louise told him that she'd be staying by herself for the next few days. Lee told her that that was a really bad idea. Louise told Lee his name, but she couldn't remember it, just that it was short. She also thought that he wasn't a local, but she didn't know where he was from. Later, detectives told Lee that the killer had taken Louise's wallet and police had gone to every coffee shop along the route. No one remembered seeing Louise. A little less than two years after Louise was raped and murdered, another young woman was murdered in the neighbourhood. 19-year-old Geraldine Forster was shot four times at Renfrew Street and Grandview Highway while returning home after walking a friend to the bus stop. She was shot with an RCMP-issued 38 calibre Smith & Wesson, stolen from the seashell home of Constable Wayne Dingle. Footprints found at the scene indicated that Geraldine had been running along the west side of Renfrew just before she was shot, and investigators thought that her attacker had jumped out from the tall grass in a field next to the railway tracks. Possibly it was an attempted rape that turned to murder when she fled. Two bullets hit her in the leg from behind as she ran. The other two shots entered the front of her body. One bullet passed through her red nylon jacket and hit her just above the chest. The other hit her in a lower right shoulder. Geraldine was originally from Fort St John, but she'd been boarding with family on East 14th Avenue for two years while she studied X-ray technology at BCIT in Burnaby. She'd recently graduated with honours and was about to complete her training at Vancouver General Hospital. Her murder appeared to be random and baffled police for the next three years. And in April 1976, police on patrol in the False Creek area noticed a suspicious-looking character hanging around the Western Chemical Company on West 5th Avenue. The 30-year-old man said he lived on Seaforth Drive in Vancouver's Renfrew area and worked in Surrey. When police searched his truck, they found a starting pistol and under the driver's seat, the Mountie stolen 38 service revolver. Constable Dingle had been renting a house from friends of the suspect and he'd been hired to do repairs there. Dingle testified that he'd been away and didn't know his gun was missing until the day after Geraldine Forster's murder. The suspect had a previous conviction for rape and it's possible he'd met Geraldine in the neighbourhood. 
They both frequented Margaret Whistle's corner grocery store at Granville and Renfrew, and the store owner told the court that Geraldine was often in the store, and because the suspect was a regular, she stocked sweet corporal cigarettes especially for him. The suspect was charged with murder, convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment. Since life usually means 10 to 14 years, he's likely changed his name and resumed his life years ago. Brian Honeyburn, now retired, was a detective sergeant and part of the Provincial Unsolved Homicide Unit when it launched in 1996. The unsolved unit's mandate was to reinvestigate cold cases referred to it from various police departments and RCMP detachments that had been inactive for more than a year. In 1996, the province had around 700 unsolved murders on its books. Honeyburn says they were keen to reopen Louise Wise's murder case and he speculated that Louise and Geraldine Forster could have been murdered by the same man. While the modus operandi was different, Louise was stabbed and Geraldine shot. Honeyburn felt that the weapons were more a means of opportunity rather than a preferred method of killing. The two murders were only several blocks apart. This nutcase that killed Geraldine Forrester at 12th and Renfrew lived, uh, lived very near the Wise. Because he was in that vicinity and may have even known young uh, Louise, that they, we had a pretty good idea it was probably him, eh? There are just a ton of women being murdered since yeah. between 71 and 76. Mm-hmm. It just, you know, when I've been looking at it, it seems to be that period. Is that just coincidental? You know, there's lots of nut cases. Mm-hmm. Don't live under the illusion for one minute that Picton's the only one out there. I'm not trying to be a scaremonger, but he's not the only one. There, there's nut cases out there, and the problem with them is they'll strike for a while, just like the Green River killer did, and then they'll lay off for a while. And, you know, they talk about M.O. and all that. Well, M.O.'s fine, but you get a woman stabbed doesn't mean the next woman stabbed was stabbed by the same guy. Just because the M.O. You know, was stabbed with a knife. The problem for police was that there was nothing to link Geraldine's murder to Louise's murder. There were no witnesses and there was no physical evidence. The only possible link would have come from DNA evidence, and that proved futile when Honeyburn went to check the knife for DNA and found it missing from the evidence room. We had the knife. Exhibits weren't cared for the way they are now. You know, there was neglect, poor uh, record keeping, and, uh, you know, it could have been 10 years later, I don't know, when somebody found a knife and maybe the tag had fallen off of it. Because in those days, what we would do is we'd tie a paper tag to it, eh? Right. And it fallen off it and out it went, or who knows where it went. I shouldn't say out it went. You know, God knows where it went. And is this a case that you reopened when you're with Unsolved? Well, it was a case we wanted to reopen, that we wanted, oh. to, we wanted to take the knife apart to see if there was any possibility of uh, DNA from the victim. And, uh, of course, we had no knife to take apart. Unfortunately, the knife wasn't the only exhibit that was missing from Louise Wise's case file. When retired homicide detective Brian Ball joined Honeyburn on the investigation... He found there was nothing to submit for DNA testing and witness statements were incomplete. He also thought they might be hunting a completely different killer, possibly someone from Ontario, and who'd likely attacked and killed before and since. There 
Well, this is uh, certainly a, a fairly extensive file for Louise, but again, from back in the 70s, it was fairly different from what you would see nowadays or what we saw, let's say, in the 90s, where all interviews through the 90s and up to now are, are always taped. They're transcribed, so you have an actual verbatim word for word. Whereas in the 70s, interviews were basically the detective doing the interview, taking notes, and what you ended up with in the file was depended on how good a note taker the investigator was. When I talked to Louise's friend Gail, she'd mentioned she'd never been re-interviewed. And did you know about her? I did know about her, yes. I did uh, see the notes that the detective from the time had put into the file. It wasn't, uh, like I say, it wasn't a verbatim statement by any means. Uh, but he did have some notes uh, of his conversation with her. She told me that she'd called a couple of days later. She'd been asked to, to keep notes and anything she remembered. And when she phoned, he seemed kind of bored and she never called back again. But I, I only recall the one mention of Gail and then the notes uh, relating to that one conversation. Right, so he may not have um, documented that at all. Yes. Knowing that, would you have re-interviewed her? With what you've said, uh, I would uh, definitely go back and uh, just go over things with her just because it appears that there's other things that, that didn't get put down on paper and aren't part of the file. What did you pick up on in particular? I was most interested in the part about Ontario. There had been a mention back when I first looked at it of possibly the Hamilton area and it just seemed like maybe Gail could expand on that a little bit more and what uh, Louise would have said to her. When I was doing the book, and that was, well, over five years ago now, and I interviewed Brian Honeyburn at the time, and he'd mentioned that they'd thought it might have been the same killer as the, the man who murdered Geraldine Forster, but we found out that that wasn't the case. So in going through the file, Louise's file, um, very prominent in there is the person that murdered Geraldine Forster uh, in 1973, as being a possible suspect in the case of Louise. Brian Honeyburn and I looked at it. You know, certainly we felt the same, that uh, he had to be considered still a, a strong suspect. However, when I was looking at the file further, looking at the part that came from Gail about the conversation and the, the mention of uh, Hamilton or the Ontario area, I sort of started looking at that part and thinking it really seemed unlikely that uh, with what I knew about the suspect in the Forster case, that this could be the same person. I just didn't see the connection. It just uh, wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And I thought we had to be talking about uh, somebody else. So where that took me was to Vyclas. For those of you who are true crime junkies, you'll know that Vyclas stands for Violent Crime Linkage Analyst System. It was developed by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in 1991 as a way of tracking and linking sexual assaults and murders across Canada. The idea is that major crime detectives from the police and the RCMP 
would provide extensive details of the crime, what was known about the offender, and hopefully find similar offences in other jurisdictions. In a best-case scenario, they would track a serial rapist or murderer and put them behind bars. Unfortunately, nothing came out of Brian Ball's search that could help him solve Louise Wise's murder. But he felt that might be more the result of not all departments going back 20 or more years to enter all their case details on both unsolved and solved major crimes. So, Brian, what would you like to see happen with Louise's case? Or do you think there's a possibility that it could still be solved? I think it's probably unlikely given the time, but I never give up hope on any unsolved case. The ability to me would be that somebody recognizes uh, the, the circumstances somewhat and, and realizes that uh, that person that they knew in 1971 uh, had gone on to commit a, another violent crime and maybe spent uh, a huge length of time uh, incarcerated. Possibly the person would be willing to talk about it and admit to what had happened. Unfortunately, though, the what was the most uh, hopeful to me initially would be that uh, DNA could be developed from the old exhibits. Peers, that's just not going to happen. Right, if you'd had the knife, for instance, that probably would have been a game-changer. I would be hopeful, yes. It was a really violent sexual attack and murder. Do you think he would have done something to lead up to that? My observations over the years have been there's usually a build-up to something like this, and also the strong possibility that he wouldn't have just done it once, that uh, there's something else that's happened somewhere, maybe in a, a different area. If he was from Ontario, maybe he went back there. Some Something happened back there, but uh, I, I would find it hard to believe that he hasn't committed something else somewhere along the way. Especially after getting away with it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. If you have any information about this or any other murder, please contact Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477 or through their website, solvecrime.ca. The average bullet travels at 1,700 miles per hour. The speed of sound is less than half as fast. So the only way to beat this sound is with this one. Crime Stoppers Anonymous tip line. Stand up against gun violence and report illegal guns. Call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. You remain anonymous. Criminals don't. Please visit my website, evelazarus.com, for more information on my books and podcasts. And if you'd like to join in the conversation about this murder and others, check out the Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada.